Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM podcast on the WWWs and all around the world. Um, we are the dogs. We are the defenders of government schools here in Australia. Um, we are a program on 3CR, which is 3 Community Radio, and our job is to defend the government school system of Australia from um, all enemies, uh, foreign and domestic. And here in Australia, the government school system has a lot of domestic people who really don't like it very much and want to get rid of it. Um, so we have to turn up on community radio to defend it. Um, there's some very interesting um, things related to education over the last week, even though we're in lockdown. Um, a former Prime Minister of Australia, his name is Mal- Malcolm Turnbull, has released a memoir in which he has detailed conversations he has had with various archbishops and religious men who run education systems here in Australia. For those of you who are overseas, and even for many Australians, you might not realise this, but the Archbishop, um, the Archbishops of various denominations, the Catholic and the Anglican in particular, the Catholic really in particular, run school systems funded by the government. Um, It's a sort of a strange mix of sectarian and the state. Um, And because of that, the funding and the money that goes to these schools, and there's many questions about where on earth it ends up and whether the people who are responsible for it, the religious people, various archbishops or bishops or cardinals, can be trusted um, to do with the money what they say they're going to do. And in many cases, this has proven not to be the case. We'll be um, talking about this um, from a couple of different directions. Firstly, um, detailing from revelations from Malcolm Turnbull's memoirs about his conversations with various um, Catholic and religious people um, that he's had in Australia. But also um, there's been a Royal Commission into the institutional approach to childhood sexual abuse across Australia. And again, um, we don't often talk about this in the Dogs Program, um, at the risk of sounding sectarian, the Catholic Church has been shown uh, without any question to... um, in many, 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 many hundreds of cases to act not in the best interests of the children. And it's been revealed by that Royal Commission just in the last couple of days that um, the former cardinal, um, Australian cardinal, his name is George Pell, um, was was a liar. He, he, he just knew about various problems, significant problems with the abuse of children and chose not to do anything about them. He being the man responsible for the school system which is ironically paid for by taxpayers, including me. Um, I'll be doing a little expose on a woman called Janet Albrickson. Um, she's a commentator in the right-wing press here in Australia. And when I say right-wing, uh, Janet Albrickson is making an argument, um, and it's a fascinating argument, that old or young, every life in Australia has a different value. And we should just accept that. We should accept that in a pragmatic way that all lives are not equal and we should take that approach into how we as a country should deal with the coronavirus and the various um, implications for people but also for what um, Janet Albrickson calls the economy. Um, I'm not quite sure where that is actually. Um, If you ask an economist, I'm pretty sure they won't be able to tell you. I understand what political economy is. I don't know what the economy is. I've never met it. I've no idea what it smells like. Um, I don't even know what it looks like. But um, political economy um, is a well-understood concept, but the economy itself is just a bit weird. I'll be doing an expose on her opinions about who it is that should live and who it is that should die and the frameworks that we should use in making those decisions. Um, But, of course, before we go further, uh, for our regular listeners, um, you'll be aware that we have our world-famous press release. And in this press release, uh, we'll be talk, we'll begin to talk about what Mr. Turnbull's um, revelations are in his book because Gene has come out with press release number 840. Um, and if you're interested in what happened in 839, and it is an ongoing saga, um, don't worry, um, you haven't missed out. You can go to our website, www.adogs.info and find out. And 838 and all the way back to press release number one, all those years ago. But without much further ado, um, I'd like to actually 
let people know exactly what 3CR is all about because we are a community radio station by sharing with you a few messages. Um, and after that, we will have Gene's world famous press release number 840. To help stop the spread of viruses like flu and coronavirus, good hygiene is essential. That starts with washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Whenever you cough, sneeze or blow your nose, prepare food or eat, care for someone sick, touch your face or use the toilet. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. Well, well, listeners, you're listening to the Dogs Program on 3CR. And here is press release 840. A lot of today's program will, in fact, be dealing with matters of church and state, since these uh, keep on rearing their ugly head in Australian education. But those of you who are interested in this issue and Section 116 of the Constitution, next Tuesday the 12th of May at 11am on Radio National 621 on the AM dial, you can hear a program on the dog's case. Uh, The dog's case was about Section 116 and it goes back to 1981 and a lot of the problems that we have at the moment between church and state in Australia and the problems we have with our public education system funding problems uh, relate back to the fact that we lost our religious liberty and the separation of church and state in 1981. So we can recommend that you listen to that, and if you miss it, you will almost certainly hear sections of it on the Dogs Program in coming weeks. But back to press release 840. Gullible Polly's being fooled by the Catholic Church. That's not me, that is a statement by Malcolm Turnbull. Since the introduction of state aid and the needs policy in 1973, and this was the Whitlam government's attempt to ameliorate the Catholic vote in GLP, the Australian Catholic Church has gained the education funding system. The church hierarchy, as opposed to caring members of the faithful, and dogs make a big distinction between the hierarchy and the faithful members of this church, the hierarchy have never cared about poor children. After all, to quote Christ himself, the poor will always be with us. The problem, of course, is that the wealthy will always be with us as well. And so will a wealthy church which lusts after power, political influence and taxpayers' money. For years, the dogs in general, and Ray Nielsen, who was the president and a financial analyst in particular, attempted to expose the bottom of the schoolyard schemes in which the Catholic Church authorities diverted money given for disadvantaged schools to wealthy schools or to new needy schools. They were always able to do this, that is the Catholic Church, because their bureaucrats received billions of taxpayer dollars in lump sums and were permitted to distribute it as they thought fit. For 60 years, the dogs have attempted to expose the descending nature of state aid for private church schools, because it's not only the Catholic Church that's now doing this, Other religious groups are doing it as well. But now, many billions of dollars later, a modicum of figures have become available on the My Schools website and there are calls for accountability. There have even been Auditor General's reports demanding some form of accountability. 
And finally, some politicians who themselves are good Catholics are fed up. Malcolm Turnbull, an ex-Prime Minister who is a Catholic convert, and he's turned himself into an author, together with Adrian Piccoli, who's the New South Wales ex-Minister of Education turned director of the Gonski Institute at the University of New South Wales. They have blown the whistle. Malcolm Turnbull has called the Catholic Church duplicitous and unaccountable in needs-based school funding. And Andrew Piccoli has agreed. Quentin Dempster, an author, a, a journalist, a very good journalist, friend the New Daily, and John Menadieu with his blogs Pearls and Irritations are to be congratulated for giving this matter oxygen. For half a century, the mainstream media never gave any coverage to the dogs, facts and figures exposing the shenanigans in the church treasuries. We had to pay for full-page advertisements to give some of the figures. But the research of Trevor Cobald of Save Our Schools has been given recent coverage. And the media that do this, they are the alternative media generally, are, are to be congratulated. Government money is received by the Catholic system in one big check. But according to Mr Turnbull and also to Mr Colding, is distributed not on the basis of educational need, but to keep school fees lower in middle-class schools in order to enhance enrolments and maintain market share against public and other independent schools, so-called. Now, in the recent published memoir, A Bigger Picture, Malcolm Turnbull exposes the arrogance of the Catholic hierarchy when they are dealing with politicians. And the really interesting thing about this memoir of Turnbull is that it has already um, sold hundreds of thousands of copies, uh, where Abbott's memoirs um, really sold very few indeed. But Turnbull has this to say, and I quote, This is not the dogs, this is Turnbull an ex-Prime Minister who is himself a devout Catholic. Over the years, he says, Catholic bishops like George Pell always insisted on the virtue of funding the Catholic schools in one lump sum as a system, and this was because they could cross-subsidise the poorest schools at the expense of those in the wealthier suburbs. And this claim seems so plausible, given the church's mission, that none of us gullible politicians questioned it. Well, he's calling himself a gullible politician, but there's also a lot of politicians who haven't got the intestinal fortitude to question it. Mr Turnbull said, that he discerned from conversations and correspondence with Archbishop Fisher from Sydney that the reverse was the case. Archbishop Fisher explained to Turnbull himself that the problem with the needs-based model was that more funding would go to schools in the poorer outer suburbs of Sydney and country New South Wales. And when he said that, Turnbull was astonished. But don't you do that now? And there was a long pause in the conversation. Archbishop Fisher said, Malcolm, if your reforms go through, it would mean the fees of St Francis's School in Paddington would have to go up. Now, for Melbourne listeners, Paddington used to be a, a, a suburb in Sydney for the poor, but since the 1970s, 80s, it is very much the suburb for the yuppies and the really wealthy. 
So Mr Turnbull wrote that the parents of St Francis with excellent education results in his Wentworth lectorate would be horrified to learn that the church was doing that. So the Archbishop tried to appeal to Turnbull's uh, political nous because these people in Paddington were his voters. But Turnbull was rather surprised. The Archbishop sighed, I am afraid to say on this occasion the politician has a more idealised view of human nature than the Archbishop. So the churchmen and the people who deal with our taxpayers' money in the Catholic hierarchy don't have a very high opinion of either human nature or themselves when it comes to honesty in dealing with other people's money. That's what he's saying. Mr Turnbull wrote that he explained to Archbishop Fisher that government funding would still come to the church in one check, but transparency was required. If they wanted to subsidise fees in posh areas at the expense of schools in poor areas, they were free to do that. But they should show that they were doing Oh, come, Malcolm, said Fisher. You know, once you tell people how the government has assessed need and shown how much each school would get, we could never get away with it. People would say... We were shortchanging poor schools to benefit the rich ones. So it's okay to do it so long as nobody finds out. Mr Turnbull wrote that at one point, Archbishop Fisher argued that schools in his Wentworth electorate were media. Listen to this, because the parents had bigger mortgages. The exchanges with Archbishop Fisher were some of the most, quote, unedifying and disappointing that Turnbull had undertaken with a church leader. This was the fundamental issue, he writes. He was objecting to transparency and accountability and wasn't prepared publicly to defend how they moved government money around their school system. Mr Turnbull concluded that he could only assume that the objective of the Catholic system was to maintain enrolments in middle-class areas by keeping these lower. And this is the market at work, because apparently for the hierarchy of the Catholic Church, the market is also made up in heaven. Dogs note that historically the church, as in medieval times, sees itself as a state within a state, an imperium in imperio. The hierarchy regard themselves as princes of the church. The church itself is a monarchy, not a democracy. When in the 19th century, Australian politicians like Henry Parks and John Dunmore Lang had the guts, the guts to confront the Australian bishops and demand accountability for education funds. And they also demanded that they uh, also um, train the teachers and have inspectors going to the schools to make sure that everything was okay. The Australian bishops didn't want the inspectors or the teachers or the government observing what was going on in their schools. And in these days, we wonder why. But the Australian bishops took their schools out from under the government funding. It wasn't just 
that the government funding stopped, it was because the archbishops would not accept accountability for public money. And this is not generally known. They did not expect it, but it took 80 years before they gained enough political influence to have it returned, but on their terms. Turnbull should not be surprised by the behaviour of Archbishop Fisher. Archbishop Fisher is doing what the archbishops of the church in Australia and around the world have always done. Nor is there anything new about the current situation with the Catholic and the other church school funding. The only thing that has changed is the calibre of our politicians. They're not like Henry Parts and John Dumoulin. They lack the guts to call out the church and its princes and princelings for their duplicitous behaviour. But we're lucky that Piccoli, who nearly lost his job when he did call them out, and Turnbull, who has lost his job, and Birmingham, who was put, put um, sideways, um, we're very lucky that they have had the guts to speak out. Hopefully, some of our politicians might learn from Turnbull and Piccoli, because he who pays the piper with our citizen taxpayer monies should also call the tune. Thank you very much, Jean, for that press release. Press release number 840, available at www.adogs.info. Um, yeah, we'll be dealing with the consequences of that press release after these. Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30pm on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions, and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're a proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit! Our education is not for profit! You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. I'm broadcasting here from, I don't know, a mysterious location, probably in someone else's lounge room, but it might even be mine, don't know. It's trouble with all this sort of broadcast remote stuff, you never quite know where you are. And about two, but things are getting very confusing. But nothing particularly confusing about what Jean's outlined in terms of the conversation between Archbishop Fisher and our ex-Prime Minister, when he was Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Um, Jean's quite right to say that, you know, Turnbull's um, surprise at this conversation is, I don't know, a bit crocodile-teary. He, he knows how it works. Everyone knows how it works. Australians here in Australia... We do education funding and have this strange relationship with religious organisations in the same way as Americans do gun laws, which is to say there is an internal logic to the reasons why Americans all must have the ability to own massive numbers of assault weapons. 
so they can defend themselves against the oppressors of freedom. And the rest of the world looks at America and goes, you're just mad. Why are you having all this? It's just, you know, but there is an internal logic to it. If you sit down and listen to an you know, American who owns 68 firearms, and that's, of course, that's not quite enough, um, they will explain to you why they have their guns. They'll explain to you why they have a million bullets. They will explain it's because when the revolution comes, they'll need to bunker down and, 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 and eat peaches and, and, and tinned vegetables. And, and But then, of course, it turns out that in America that if they do have to bunker down and eat peaches and tinned vegetables, then they get out in the streets and demand the freedom to, to not bunker down um, and catch all these diseases. It's all rather weird. Um, I know it sounds strange, but it is no stranger than the way Australia does education funding. We give billions of dollars to a, any religious organisation that wants it to set up a school to educate their children um, based on the particular precepts of their religion. And you go, well, that's fine. We've been talking, and Jean's been talking, about the Catholic Church and the Catholic Archbishop and his conversations, the sheer the sheer unbridled power of his position in a conversation with the Prime Minister, um, but not because we're sectarian, not because we you know, hate those Catholics because they've got guns or something. Um, it's not nothing to do with that. It's just the strange, corrupt practicalities of the way Australia does education and the entanglement we have with all religions, but particularly the Catholic religion, because they run one quarter of the schools that educate Australians. It's just weird. And you tell us to people who come from other countries and they go, but why? And the only answer you can give, really the only truthful answer you can give, is that's just the way we do things around here. And if they keep asking questions, you have to come back to that. Oh, look, I'm afraid it, it's, as a famous actor once said to me, it's just beyond my control. However, here at the Dogs, it's not beyond our control. We highlight this fact because this needs to be highlighted because, quite frankly, um, religions do not have the best interests of Australia at heart. And why should they? Um, they've got their own agendas, and Jean says they're a state within a state. And they certainly uh, don't have the best interests of children at heart. Now, this has become very apparent just in the last week, and it is, to my mind, with a bit of sadness that, that I really should be talking about this, because the Catholic Church generated, for the first time in history, their very own cardinal, um, a, a man of immense power and influence on the world stage. His name was Pell. Now, he was charged with molesting children, and then he was then... Um, by the High Court of Australia, after many, many, many hundreds of millions of dollars were spent on his defence, was found to be not guilty. Well, not so much not guilty, just had no charge to answer. The High Court found that no jury um, should have found him guilty because there was insufficient evidence, which, um, to be to be fair, is the same as being found innocent. However, since that time, the redacted uh, files of the Royal Commission into his organisation's running of various institutions, including schools, has released information relating to Cardinal Pell. It's now been it's now been released because there are no other pending criminal charges against him. However, it is very likely there will now be a very large number of civil charges um, brought against Cardinal Pell uh, because the Child Sex Abuse Royal Commission has found that he knowingly involved he was knowingly involved in the shifting around the movement around of notorious pedophile priest, a fellow called Jared Risdale, in the 1980s. Now, he says, oh, I didn't know. I didn't know that these terrible men did these terrible things. But the Royal Commission has found, has found that um, that's an untenable position for him to hold and that he did, of course, know, because it was his job to know. The Commission has rejected key aspects of Cardinal Pell's evidence to the Royal Commission and said that he first became concerned about Risdale, a known convicted pedophile himself, known about Risdale, um, and he moved him to Sydney 
Um, and even though the responsibility was with the current bishop at the time, which wasn't uh, Pell, Pell knew about this because he had an active role in it. He was called what was called a consultor at the time, who helped decide where and when to move priests all around the country. That was his job. Although he maintained um, uh, that Pell himself, he says, oh, no, nothing to do with me, all to do with my boss. But the commission found that Cardinal Pell's evidence that the pedophilia was not mentioned when Rizdar was moved and that the true reason was never given as to his movement, um, the Royal Commission just found that that was completely um, unacceptable. That was just not believable under any. Um, in fact, it's implausible. Given the matters set out, the, the bishop at the time, a fellow called Mulkerns, um, didn't talk about why Rizdar was meeting to the person who had the role of moving him, who was the consultant, which was Pell himself. So Pell can deny till the cows come home. He says, oh, I didn't know anything about anything about anything. I wasn't particularly interesting to me. However, the Royal Commission has come to the conclusion that that's just so implausible as to be untrue. And I'm sure I'm very nice number of civil cases. Now, I would not normally bring this up on a program about defending government schools, except that George Pell was responsible for moving priests around, not from parish just to parish to parish, but from school to school. This was his job. He did it whenever there was a complaint against a priest of a sexual nature. So the complaint was that the, that the priest is abusing the children in the school to which he is attached. He says, well, I didn't know. That was unconfirmed. That was just a rumour and wasn't particularly interesting. He'd move them sometimes. And sometimes it turns out that he would not move them. And in one particular case, and I have to say this is a very disturbing case, not to do with Rizdar but another priest, he chose not to move a priest um, because he did not believe the charges that were laid against that priest, which, by the way, were then found in a court of law to be true. So the fact that he didn't believe it was, in fact, not just an error of judgment, it was an error of fact. Um, the priest did do the things of which he was accused, which he was accused. Now, these were terrible things. The priest would go into the school, into the Catholic school, and he would start killing animals in front of children to, to toughen them up. He would start taking them to behind where um, the altar was in the church and show them corpses so they understood what death was really all about. He was a mean and cruel man and found to be so. And Pell said, oh, no, there's, there's no real evidence. It's just a child's word. It's just a child talking. It's just a child's gossip, which, of course, was the reason why he was acquitted by the High Court, because in the end, the High Court found that the word of a child was not sufficient to convict a cardinal as a matter of law. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is, it's, it's, is that these people run schools. And they continue to do so. They will say, and there will be some argument, that, oh, that was just in the olden days. We don't, we're not like that anymore. But as Jean has just said, um, the Catholic Church has never wished to be accountable for any of its actions in, in the school system, has refused to be accountable. In fact, they spent 80 years in the 20th century not getting funding from the federal government or the state governments because they refused to be accountable. Now, they have my money to run their schools. I, I'm a taxpayer. They have my money to do it. But they're still not accountable. Robert, I'd like to say here, can I say, yes, can please. I, can I interrupt here? Please. After 26 days in the High Court in 1979, uh, the church argued that the priests and the archbishops really had nothing to do with running the, the school system. They argued this because they didn't want the schools to be labelled as religious institutions because they didn't want them to be counter to the separation of church and state in Section 116. So it's really quite astonishing that at the time that they were arguing this, priests had the power 
to do the things which the Commission has since discovered they did. Uh, once again, it's very difficult to deal with religious people who moralise and then do pretty terrible things. Yes. I know, uh, Jean, I think that it's a, it's, a, it's a useful marker in 1979 because they'll make... Various people, if given an amount of money, will say anything or do anything to keep that amount of money that they have. And now we have discovered in you know, it was 2020... Um, they don't even have to pretend to say those things anymore because they just have the money. And if you try and take it off them, they'll make political points, as, as, as the Archbishop did to Turnbull in that conversation. Um, this is quite a sad story, and I'm afraid I've got something else which I find quite troubling, uh, which I'm going to share with you. It's an article actually in The Australian. Oh, by the way, um, that, uh, the information I'm getting about the Royal Commission's revelations into George Pell comes from the Australian. Um, I'm reading, I'm quoting from an article uh, which was published in the Australian a couple of days ago, published in the Australian a couple of days ago, um, by John Ferguson, um, a, a journalist there. Now, this is not sort of left-wing press. This isn't, this isn't 3CR kind of stuff. This is a right-wing publication stating that, that, that George Pell will spend the rest of his life uh, defending civil suits because the Royal Commission to Childhood Sexual Abuse has found him culpable at an organisational level, not at a personal level. But the Australian, if you, if you happen to live in Australia, is um, what can be described as an ultra-conservative newspaper. It's, um, it's the head of the Murdoch stable, and there's a particular called Janet Aldrichson, and uh, Janet Aldrichson has outlined why we as Australians should start to make decisions about who should live and who should die um, in this pandemic. And she, li- and she lays out the rationale for opening up the economy and let the chips fall as they may. This includes opening up our schools, of course. Of and course it includes opening up all schools. Except I'll tell you right now, Geelong Grammar ain't going to be opening up very soon and neither is Trinity. I've been doing some research through the week about how these wealthy schools are coping with the online learning environment and the answer is they are extremely well resourced and they are coping extremely well. I can tell you, Jean, that um, um, in at least two very wealthy independent schools, not Catholic schools, independent schools in inner Melbourne, that children are not going to school but they are literally sitting in their rooms and having their maths class online and then their physics class online and then they're going out to recess, probably going to the kitchen to get a cuppa, and they're coming back. They are running a normal school day. They have the technology, they have the resources, they have the teachers, they have the teachers' assistants to actually run an entire school program um, from home. From home, the children are not missing out on any education because they are so well resourced. This is brilliant, by the way. This is what every child in Australia should be doing at the moment, but I can tell you they're not. Um, in fact, uh, several VCE students in very well resourced are actually sitting in their sacks in a couple of weeks. I'll be doing that online as well because they have so many resources to support the children that, that it's all just going rather smoothly. They're not coming back. Oh, no, 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 no. Those children are not going anywhere near the school for any other reason than what they have to. Although I will say this, the children did go into school a couple of days ago in one particular wealthy private school for 10 minutes to get their flu jabs, which I thought was a very good thing to have done for the children too. So, quite frankly, um, there's a lot of very wealthy private schools that don't give a damn one way or the other. And um, politicians can take a flying leap if they're going to try and make them go back to school before it's safe. But quite frankly, it's not. So they don't. Why should they? But I'll be talking a little bit about this article. I'd like your input, Dale and Jen, on this, um, about Janet Albertson's ideas about deciding who should live and who should die. But um, on that note, let's have some music, I think, just to cheer us up.
sisters, what a show of strength we've got here today. Local issues. So I'm here at the school kids strike for climate action. Live coverage. Join the, the spirit of this gathering here today at IMARC. Your voices. So give us a bit of a lowdown about what's happening. There's about 200, 200 people here at the moment. Community struggles. We're now in front of the uh, Tundaminuaya Mōbohina Monument. I'd like to thank Community Radio 3CR, who for the last decade has been broadcasting here. Feed Radical Radio, your membership is vital. A few hundred people about to pass us right now. Lots of young people standing up for their future. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 and the AM Bell. Now, we don't often um, confront sophistry here on the Dogs Program, but I think it's about time we did. There is an assumption in Australia, and it's been some time, that in the, in the education system, some children's education is more valuable than other children's education. Some children's lives and the support for their education is more important than other children's. And in Australia, there's a graph that can show you the difference between children who are worth more and children who are worth less. And it is what's called the socioeconomic scale. The richer your parents are, the more likely you are to have a, an effective, efficient and accountable education. Um, and the poorer your parents are, the less likely you are to achieve the same educational outcomes. It's just, it's a fact. It's something you would assume of a third world country and something you would assume a first world or civilised nation would, would not accept. But here in Australia we do. And this, this inequality has increased in the last generation. It's increased since the turn of the century. In fact, it's a feature of Australia's education system that we are one of the most unequal education systems in the developed world. Now, how does this come about? Well, you start to have all these ideas of of, of the logic of justifying this as an idea. And these ideas can go from education into the broader society and indeed the broader economy. And someone like Janet Albrechtson, the Australian, is a champion of these ideas of the benefits, of the necessity of inequality, how unfairness and neoliberal economics are necessities for the development of a civilised nation. And to do that requires sophistry. Now, to quote Janet, she says, when this pandemic has passed, there will need to be a reckoning of responses by state and federal governments. The reckoning should focus in particular on the costs incurred and the benefits accrued from the Morrison government's decisions. How and when they responded to the health crisis, the cost of the lockdown, and when and how they unlocked the economy. This reckoning should not be downplayed as negative or unfair criticism of governments forced to fly in the dark, hampered with incomplete modelling, hamstrung by medical experts who are all trained and paid to expect the worst and hindered by their political aversion to risk. Now, I love this. This is wonderful. Those poor politicians are hamstrung by medical experts. She goes on to say, this should be about constructive learning, gathering information, comparing real outcomes to the modelling and the experts' advice, and doing a rigorous cost-benefit analysis of responses. Now, I will say that the assumption she makes, and I make it for her, is that a rigorous analysis of cost-benefit analysis of responses at an economic monetary level is, from her point of view, what she's interested in. Is this she a cost-benefit analysis for the people who are the 1% who own, um, in 2002, 31% of the wealth of Australia? Or is it for the 10% that have 
44.9% of the wealth of Australia. Now, these are the people who are paying her salary so that she can sing this song. Yes, yes. No, it is for those people. It isn't for the, the lower 50%. And so to her mind, she must, she must, what she says, must dismantle or destroy some straw men in any potential arguments before we start. She's setting the terms of any argument that is allowed to be had. Some say, she says, we should put people ahead of economics. Some, she says. Well, I say, civilised society is judged on its treatment of individuals and putting people ahead of economics. Scott Morrison says, every Australian matters. And some say that it's wrong to ignore the old. Now, Janet Albrechtson says all of these arguments are straw men arguments. She said, if only dealing with COVID-19, not mentioned settling on many other policies, then it would be that simple. But she says that no one is saying we should ignore the old. But doctors that she has spoken to, many of have worked for more than 30 years as doctors, acknowledge that they make decisions every week about older patients and they don't that they don't have to make about younger ones. Age, unfortunately, is inevitable, she says. Oh, dear. A determinant in health decisions. As one senior anaesthetist told me last weekend, the decisions are often shrouded in secrecy, but we don't have unlimited resources to treat everyone very, very well, to the maximum, she says. She then says, and I think this is just weird, the committed Catholic accepts that sometimes he or she has to make difficult decisions. This is not something he or her colleagues are comfortable with, but reality cannot be wished away by saying that all lives matter. They do. Life is precious, but no life is priceless. Lives are prices only in fictional places called la-la land, where resources are infinite, she says. She says, another doctor pointed to decision-making infrastructure purposely built to determine who gets a set of lungs or a heart transplant. And she says, you know, it implies that older people are less likely to. She says, measuring the responses to COVID-19 raises similar confronting issues that Many prefer not to think about. Obscuring the difficulty of these issues is and simplistic sound bites, such as putting people ahead of the economy, is unhelpful at best and dishonest, she says, at worst. The concept of the value of statistical life, she says, is an estimate of the value society places on reducing the risk of dying. The modelling starts with young adults of 40 ahead of those um, who called the value of statistical life years, which is estimated at the worst society places on one year of life. Drawing on research, she says, by scientists in 2007 and updated this year, the 2019 guidance notes suggest the value of saving a life of someone who has 40 years of life is $4.9 million, valuing statistically a life at $213,000 per annum. The note draws on work that argues that estimates will vary according to the characteristics of people affected by the nature of the risk or hazard. That is, for example, a society may be willing to forego more, more to prevent the death of a young person or to avoid conditions that significantly reduce the quality of life. Now here we get to something very dangerous. She is saying that how old you are can be determined in economic terms as the value of your life. But what about your education level? What about your ability to contribute to the economy in itself relating to your current, previous and past incomes? What if this is included in in the economic number that is put next to your name that determines your value to society, that determines whether you live or die, because all of a sudden politicians are highly qualified medical practitioners. All of a sudden 
people who are making decisions about whether you live or die based upon what school you went to, based upon the income that you've generated, based upon all these things which can be measured, the decision that, for instance, a heart surgeon makes in whether they're going to operate on someone, depending upon whether they're 8 or 80, whether those decisions are placed in the hands of economists and politicians, not medical professionals who are determining the likelihood of survival in a physical operation. That's what she's talking about. Robert, are you saying that the life of a child who goes to Haileybury down the road is going to be more valuable under her her, her, um, ideas than my grandson who goes to the local state school? She would say that that is part of a a necessarily hard-headed and rational analysis of society. That's what she would say in response to your question. That's exactly what she's saying. She says, life is tough. We have to make tough decisions. And in making tough decisions, people are going to be, people are going to be died. They're going to be dead. And she's talking about after this COVID-19 thing's over. No, she's not. She's talking about now. It's sophistry. She says, oh, but what terrible, terrible things. Nice people who are very valuable now have mental health problems because they're locked up and the economy is, is, is falling apart. I can't actually go on with it because it actually just annoys me because she's just conflating so many ideas. And she says, it's not about utilitarian philosophy. It's just about hard-headed what makes sense. Common sense, she says. Well, it's a sad note to leave us on, but I'm just going to say that that is preparing the ground for decisions that certain people would love to make on my behalf, and they can go to hell. Yes, and that makes it so important that we stay here on 3CR and put alternative views. People do matter. And if you're interested in what we're talking about, you will be able to contact us on our website, www.adogs.info. On 3cr.org.au. Uh, don't call the station. There's no one there. So I won't give you the phone number. It's not going to work for a couple of weeks yet. But don't worry. We'll all get through it. And that's the bit of hope we have at the end. Yep, schools will come back. Schools will come back when it's safe for children. All schools will come back when it's safe for children. And for those and poor people, for those poor people who send their children to schools where they're safe, not safe for other reasons. Um, I just feel quite sad. But beyond that, until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night, alive as you and me. Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead. I never died, says he, I never died, says he. In Salt Lake City, Joe says I, him standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe. Says killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe. Says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man. Says Joe. I didn't die. Says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes. Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill Yeah.
Listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.